The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. Welcome to this What's Working in Washington Extra. We're here with Peter Abrams, the market president and publisher of the Washington Business Journal. You know, every community needs umpires, the people who call the balls and strikes. Well, how do we know how a region is doing? Who's getting things done? Who's not getting things done? Well, Peter's been part of a region's media landscape for many years now and has unique perspectives on a region's growth and opportunities and how the local media reports on our progress and how it holds us accountable when we do not. These are important things to discuss, and it's important to have umpires, and we're happy to talk with Peter today. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's good to be here, Jonathan. I made the allusion to umpires. You know, umpires in any sport, you know, baseball or football, are the people who make sure that a game's played properly, make sure rules are followed, but also helps the fan understand what's happened. It would seem to me that with where we are in the economy and the community here today, What's the role of the Washington Business Journal in today's media landscape? How do you how do you see it playing against that umpire analogy I just came up with? Well, I think we look at our business in a couple different ways. First of all, you know, our responsibility is to report on the facts. I think that uh, like any good journalistic institution, we want to provide really a picture of what's happening in greater Washington business. Uh, from the business side, our goal is to really help businesses grow and expand and understand the marketplace to, to draw that map for them. So that as they're really charting the course for what the future looks like, uh, we provide hopefully uh, you know, some good guidance on that based on what we cover, how, we, how our events are laid out, kind of all the marketing options we have. It's really a mix. Um, and that's the way we look at our businesses on both sides of that equation. You know, you use the word journalism. That's a word that gets thrown around a lot these days. Uh, what does journalism mean when you, for you and the paper when you describe the term? Uh, it's a good question, especially with all the bloggers. And, you know, th- really, how do you determine when something is legitimate, when it's editorialized? I, I think for us, you know, when we look at journalism, it's really the integrity that exists in reporting what's going on without an agenda. We really just want to lay out uh, what we think are the facts and what's happening in greater Washington and business. Um, And hopefully we have the skills as a team to do that. We have one of the most incredible uh, reporting and editing teams uh, in all of the country who focuses on business. So I think for us, it's really just having integrity, reporting as we see it without trying to inject our own opinion. My sense is that for a while, it seemed like the media landscape was really atomizing. You know, you mentioned bloggers. Uh, the idea that citizen journalists, whatever that meant. And the the landscape is so littered with people expressing opinion, masquerading as as journalism, that it appears to me that you're now seeing a looping back and, and, and a desire on the part of at least some part, if not a larger part of the population, to go to places that have a brand identification around information integrity. Is that what you're getting at? Well, I think we have to build trust. And what has happened in the media landscape is you know, anybody could report anything. The information, it wasn't checked. There was no fact checking, at least particularly on the blog side or on the posting side. It was very difficult for a reader or for a consumer of media to understand what's legitimate, what has background, what is factual. We've seen, I think, a return to people 
looking for trusted sources of information because because the landscape is so littered, because so many people are able to share their opinion unchecked to wide swaths of audience, we really feel that the the community, especially in Washington, D.C., where it's the most highly educated community in the country, has come back to say, you know what? We understand the difference now between a trusted source of journalism, where it's been vetted, where they have a process, other than someone who you know, effectively is just spouting off what their opinion is. And I'm not saying that someone who wants to share their opinion should have that opportunity, but to be able to filter that and understand what is legitimate and what people can trust and what is just someone sharing their opinion – the political landscape, I think, has lent itself to that. If you look at, I, I think, the way people are consuming information, the return of the byline, the return of, of all journalism from TV to you know all that's on the Internet and, of course, what's in print, both in magazines and newspapers. For us, ironically, we've actually seen an increase in circulation over the past couple of years, net circulation. So where there is this story that media is dying and that nobody cares, we're seeing just the opposite. Our business is growing and our circulation is growing pretty significantly. It'll, it grew double digits last year, net meaning what we gain versus what we, we lost. People move and make other decisions and go fully digital. Um, so we're seeing that return uh, to people really wanting that information. So double digits last year in circulation growth. And I think we'll see the same this year. Also, when I'm out and about, I talk to people about the specific stories that they have interest in. They are consuming it. So they're not just buying it. They're actually reading it and using it to make determinations on what the future looks like. We don't expect someone to take our paper and make sure that that is the only information they're using. They have to kind of consume all sorts of information. What we hope is it gives them guidance. It stops them to question what's going on. We provide a new perspective. We're illustrating new companies, new innovation in the area. So I think because of that, we've seen the return of people saying, you know what, I care now. I, I actually really need this for my business. The last point I'll make is that we are clearly at the end of a very long run for a very strong economy. And I think as we enter into a little bit uncertainty, we have political uncertainty, we have economic uncertainty, you know, there's conflicts across the globe. People are needing that information now more than ever. It's harder to do your job now. Mm -hmm. So if they don't have that information from all sorts of different sources, both internally and externally, they can't be as effective. And I think that's also lending itself to why people are kind of reengaging. Um, in traditional media. Yeah, my sense is that uh, what we have right now is there's a real danger that we'll all drown in subjectivity. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you're in business, the reality is business is pretty straightforward. You either make money or you don't. If you're a social venture, you reach donors, or you don't. If you, you help the community or you don't. It's very binary. And yet politics these days is it, it appears binary. It's by you know, it's hyperpartisan. But the reality is that a lot of people now are trying to make information not binary at all, but really messy. How do you, as a business journalist, as a business newspaper, navigate this idea of of information having merit in a, in a political environment where a fair number of people are using disinformation now as a political strategy? Yeah, I mean, we don't really play in that area, although it does, I think, impact the way we look at what we're reporting. 
for us, our editor-in-chief, Anna Sinha, that is essentially her job, is to make sure that she's working with our reporters to provide information, not opinion. Hmm. And we certainly do have opinion sections in the paper, and um, we love those. But I think on the reporting side, we make sure that we're trying to report fairly, balanced, and evenly all the information that we're covering. Um, and I think that we feel very strongly about that responsibility. I think if you look at a lot of the other media ventures, especially, you know, there are a few TV networks that have gone to, you know, opposite corners to try and make their point, and it's all editorialized. I think we look to make sure that we don't fall into that trap. And we try and, you know, have multiple sources, both on the record, in, on background. We really look to try and make sure that we're getting all of the information and not doing anything other than reporting the facts. That's Just right. the facts, ma'am. So, so let's let's talk about facts. Let's start with this. You're part of a, a media company that has newspapers all over the country. As you go around the country, what are you hearing from people? What do people think when they think of D.C. and the region right now? I think I'll back up. So previously, the Washington Business Journal, I spent two years kind of traveling around the country and actually uh, particularly Europe. I was spending a lot of time overseas and I would tell you that the perception just in the area externally is not very positive. I think people look at D.C. as um, really just a traffic accident. And it's, uh, you know, what, what, what they see of D.C. is what is on TV. It's the political discourse. The reality is there's a lot going on that has nothing to do with politics and I think part of our job, and we do a lot of sharing of stories across our network. We're in uh, 43 markets, 40 in print. So we try and share those stories that have impact, especially as, as the economy becomes national and international, where companies are, um, you know, kind of, they may have an office here, but they may be in three of our other markets, trying to communicate that message through. Um, but I think the opinion of D.C. in, generally, in general isn't great. Um, although I would tell you that in spending a lot of time with the economic development uh, organizations within Greater Washington, they are starting to communicate that message from a business standpoint, from innovation, from investment, from the kind of businesses that are here. If you look back 10 years ago to today, the federal government, I mean, we've been looked at, Jonathan, as a federal town, right, a government town. The reality is while federal spending has remained constant, its impact on local GDP has decreased by 10%. Mm -hmm. So private industry is moving in. I think we see that with, you know, obviously Amazon HQ2, which was a huge win for the region, not just for Crystal City. Um, but then you see companies like Nestle. And previous to that, Audi and Volkswagen made the commitment. Hilton made the commitment to come here. So I think you're seeing a lot of these major corporations making a decision to be here for several reasons. I think partly they want the proximity to the federal government, lobbying all the things that they're trying to put forward. But I think you're also seeing that there is a bona fide, qualified, highly educated workforce here that they're really trying to grasp. Uh, we have several of the top uh, educational institutions from Marymount, as you know, to GW, Georgetown, University of Maryland, we're blessed with some of the best uh, universities in the area. Then you look at what's happening in Virginia with Virginia Tech and UVA and George Mason, all making huge investments in, in trying to train our workforce. Um, and I think all of that over time is having a really positive impact. So I think that opinion across the country that D.C. is a bit of a mess, um, at least politically, 
is less important than how is the infrastructure being developed to support business in greater Washington. That's my sense, too. And also what the data shows is that we are doing an exceptional job of creating computer scientists and engineers for the rest of the country. And that's one of the trends that I want to talk about when we come back after this break. We're here in What's Working in Washington Extra with Peter Abrams, the market president and publisher of the Washington Business Journal. We'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. What's Working in Washington Extra. We're here with Peter Abrams, the market president and publisher of the Washington Business Journal. Before the break, I teased out that we're going to be talking a bit about the outflow of talent. Let's start there. Peter, you look at the numbers that Mason Fuller Institute's provided. You look at numbers that LinkedIn and others have provided. We're creating a great, talented workforce that's going to Silicon Valley and New York and other places. Why do you think that is, and what should we be doing about it? Well, those are, uh, it's first of all, it's, it's a great question, especially on a Monday. I mean, I think as we get into the work week, we, this is exactly what we're really uh, looking to address. So I, I think it's a couple things. A lot of major metropolitan areas, not just the greater Washington area, are losing talent. And they're losing it to places where innovation and housing work together, right? So it's not just the fact that the jobs are there, but they can live, work, play in that area. So I, I think there are some things we've already done to address that. Um, but one of the things that I think is you'll see over time is that as we begin to, to really develop the infrastructure with the Silver Line opening, several other uh, improvements by Metro are really f allowing for all of this residential living to pop up. If you look at what Tyson's looks like, what Reston looks like. Boston, Roslyn, all along the orange and silver lines. And it's not just in Virginia. I, I'm, I'm not meaning to focus on one thing. But that infrastructure, I think, is going uh, to afford us to actually attract some really strong workers. I think also, we talked earlier about some of the investments that the universities and colleges are making in this area. I think as they do that and increase their program, as Virginia Tech begins to open up their technology center in Crystal City in 2020, I, I really think you're going to see people staying and working here. I think Amazon, while it's not going to have, you know, it's it's 25,000 jobs over 10 years, it could pop up to 38,000. If you look at what the workforce predictions are by 2030, we're supposed to gain about 378,000 jobs somewhere in that neighborhood. Right. So if you look at that, and I think you think about the Amazon impact maybe being 10% of that, we're, we're banking on all of the ancillary companies you know, if you look out in Loudoun County with all the data centers, that that real estate is fairly well developed. 
but you should see all the companies that are coming in to serve those data warehouses. Mm -hmm. I feel like the same thing is going to happen. Amazon traditionally hires people with experience. So companies are going to move in, I believe, and from what I've lot talking to a lot of people, they're moving in knowing that they're going to acquire that talent, train them. Maybe a couple of years they're going to lose them to Amazon. It's kind of the farm system for some of the technology. If you go back and think about before AOL launched, there was no virtually no technology here that wasn't connected to the government. Ted Leonsis makes this huge investment, builds a campus out near Dulles. All of a sudden, there's a spinoff. There are wealthy people who have a technology background who have stayed and invested in the greater Washington area. I really do think you're going to see a return to that. So I think we're putting some of the things in place. Um, and then you look at what the economic development authorities, agencies, and corporations are doing. I think they're setting themselves up for success. I've been working this problem for a while, as you know. And Yes. <laughs> and for me, what you've identified, the biggest issue we have is you mentioned housing and people want to do innovation proximate. What we see in Seattle and, and San Francisco and New York and other places is those are very expensive places to live. And so what ends up happening is the businesses that are most able to attract people are also the ones that pay the most and have the most upside. And in our economy, those have to be product-oriented companies because they have the 60, 70, 80% margins of growth that allow you to pay somebody $250,000 a year to be a developer. It seems to me that the other part of the puzzle that we need to address, and I've been doing it at the Tandem Product Academy and Marymount's Entrepreneurship Initiative, is we need to teach people how to migrate away from service-oriented culture to one that's product-oriented. And we have a real gap here in that, with that in mind. I know you're, you're nodding, you agree. <laughs> the bigger thing is you're now in the trenches in your role. You have a ringside seat with the economic development folks, with regionalism. I know they, they're working this problem every day. What are you seeing? Are we succeeding at all with regionalism? Is it, is it occurring the way it seemed like it was going to through the Amazon bid? Uh, you know, I think uh, some of that is yet to be determined. But I think if you look at, you know, we have different challenges. So look at some of the areas that are playing really well together. Research Triangle, Chicago, even some of the San Francisco, San Jose development that, that's working together. We have three jurisdictions with three very separate sets of, I think, attractive qualities that are going to bring the workforce. So typically what has happened is, you know, the way site selection used to work is that you would hire a consultant, they would put people on a long list, you would get con contacted, you were on that long list, you would be interviewed, you'd provide information, maybe get to the short list, and then you'd be selected. That's the way that companies were coming in. Nowadays, so much of that information is available. I was talking yesterday with David Iannucci from Prince George's County who said, here's the reality, there are no more long lists. You don't find out very often until you make that short list so we are working, we're seeing a lot of the economic development agencies have to work together because they're presenting the region. Someone isn't necessarily saying, I want that building on that street in that community. They're saying, we understand what's happening in greater Washington. The companies are dictating that they only want to hear one voice. They really don't well, want to hear. That's what Amazon hear. did. That's what Amazon did very effectively. I mean, there are people who would argue that Amazon knew exactly where they were going. It was a big data grab. It doesn't really matter because the reality is, as, as I think of region, we did a great job. If you look at the transportation initiatives that were able to be pushed through as a region, we're starting to see some of that work together. All, you know, as, as there have been several changes in Northern Virginia in those economic development authorities, we've seen now they have announced that they'll be banding together and partnering. Now we have to make sure that 
D.C. is included in that conversation, and suburban Maryland is included in that conversation. The region really is Baltimore to Richmond. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got to start thinking that way. If you look at the development that's happening in Columbia, Columbia is almost exactly between Baltimore and D.C. Eight million square feet of, of development is going on there. It's beautiful. They've invested huge money. Companies are looking to come into that area. That impacts greater Washington as, as people move into those areas. Look at just even just what's happening in greater Washington. The wharf, which is looked at as, you know, wow, this is amazing. We've got company. We've got, uh, you know, restaurants and retail. The reality is the big news there were, were the office tenants that moved in. I mean, it was a very significant play for a law firm to choose the wharf when they could have gone anywhere in the city. Um, so I think we're starting to see some of these gateways begin to open up. And I think that will allow the city to expand its area, both for residential and for corporate. Um, also, you know, unfortunately, the vacancy rates in D.C. are pretty high right now. So there is an attractive reason to come here. I think the rents, people are being a little more aggressive on the rents, a little bit more aggressive on the TI, which is allowing companies to move in and get the space that they want. It's interesting to me, as we wind this up, as you describe the growth of the region, the opportunity, a lot of it seems to be real estate led, you know, placemaking. I've had people argue that places aren't relevant anymore. You know, the world's flat. Everything can be done through. Uh, What do you think about that argument? I disagree with that completely. Completely. I think people move where they're going to enjoy their life. Work is part of that, but there have to be all sorts of amenities. I think if you look at your sports teams, I would argue that, and I haven't, I can't say this factually, but we have sports in almost every major category. From professional football, we have brand new XFL franchise launching February 8th called the DC Defenders. You know, the Mystics recently won the national championship for the WNBA. We have the DC United. We've got a women's professional football league, a professional lacrosse team. That's just one segment. Look at all the things that we offer from a cultural and art standpoint. We have the second most live theater next to New York. So there are these amenities. And I don't buy that that just because people are working at home or they're in a shared office space that the area doesn't matter. People want to live where they're happy. That's why this area is so great is because it offers so much. So I just flatly disagree with that. I believe that it doesn't matter the shape of the world. It just matters what we're doing within the greater Washington area. So I think it's fair to say that I I shouldn't expect a VR rollout from you anytime soon. Definitely not. (laughs) Well, Peter, it was great having you share your perspective today. That was Peter Abrams, the market president and publisher of the Washington Business Journal. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And now, non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. If you haven't heard, Amazon is bringing HQ2 to the DC region. The success of the company and its impact on retail is historic, if not epic in nature. Jeff Bezos has changed the face of commerce for the next hundred years. So if you're launching a new business, How do you decide on old school bricks and mortar locations versus virtual business and e-commerce versus hybrids? And how do you keep track of all of these market trends? On the one hand, retail store physical location closings have reached an all-time high in 2019. And yet in the converse, some 100% online retailers, companies like Warbury Parker, are quickly establishing old school bricks and mortar. Today's new business owner has many choices. 
for office locations. You have co-working, such as WeWork, Launch. We even have now a co-working location just for women-owned businesses called The Riveter, which is growing quickly, and many others that offer alternatives to traditional office space. If you're in the food business, you have ghost kitchens and delivery services such as DoorDash and Uber Eats and Grubhub that all offer alternative physical space models to traditional restaurant locations. Amazon and alternative retail ecosystems and marketplaces such as eBay and others offer alternatives to traditional bricks and mortar as well. And then there's all of the hybrids, stores within a store, pop-ups, seasonal units, co-branded units, strategic subleasing. All of these offer alternatives to long-term retail lease obligations. You know that the malls and shopping centers are under pressure to fill increasingly dead space, and they're offering a multitude of alternative hosting arrangements and pop-up arrangements and shorter-term leases, all to try and drive sales and foot traffic. So before you make a commitment to a long-term office or retail lease, be sure to consider all of your alternatives. Before long, these alternative locations will be the primary choice and the traditional commitment to workspace and retail space will be in the minority. That was your non-billable consult with legal expert, Andrew Sherman. We believe there's such a need for authentic information that's positive and useful. You know, there are many, many people here in the D.C. region who get up every day and just get after creating new things and are committed to making our community better. My producer, Tracy Madigan, and I speak with people every day that tell us amazing stories of that they want to share about the progress they're making, the things that they care about, and why they're proud to be part of the greater Washington community. You're going to meet many of them on this show. That's what working in Washington really means to us. Now more than ever, I feel that a positive voice is needed in our society, our communities. We need to make sure that we reach each other and that we work together. And we'll do our best to make sure that we're genuine and every show provides you with useful insights. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, The Sunbathers, and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout-out to Marymount University School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. Check us out at marymount.edu. And, of course, thanks to Active Navigation, Sarefloor Shaw, and the Greater Washington Board of Trade, who provide the financial support to make this show possible. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.